The Fake Show podcast is brought to you by Hash House Agogo, the law firm of Hutchison and Stefan, Brew City Brand Apparel, the Food Connection LV.com, and by Mr. Antenna. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Well, Stuart Copeland is a name which most of us would relate to the legendary band The Police. However, his role as a drummer in one of the biggest rock bands in music history is just a fraction of his activities. In the past decade or so, he was involved in recording soundtracks, documentaries, and expanding his world as a multi-instrumentalist. Now, Stewart is hosting HDNet Movies Classic Rock Week, telling the stories of 19 of rock's most influential artists with a lineup that includes, of course, The Police, The Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, The Who, and many more. I've got Stuart Copeland on the line right now from Los Angeles. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm great, Stuart. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. The series that you're hosting, HD Net Movies Classic Rock, really sounds fantastic. How did you get hooked up with that? I guess it was an incoming call. They said they had a passel of movies and that I want to host it. I said, why, sure. And the impressive lineup starts July 16th with your own film, Everyone Stares the Police Inside It Out. I've seen that and really liked it. In fact, I, I recall feeling, you know, all of the joy and angst that you guys probably felt. Well, that's because it's, the film is so subjective. It's very first-person shooter um, because the camera crew was not outside the band. The camera crew was a member of the band. In fact, the camera is a member of the band. So when you're watching the film, your name is Stuart and Andy is shouting at you. Yeah, right. One of the documentaries that I think you'll be featuring is one that I saw recently, actually, about Rush. You must oh, yeah. have you must have an appreciation for not only because they're a three piece, but because of the incredible drummer in that band, Neil Peart. Well, Neil Peart was one of my best friends. It turns out uh, after all these years, and yes, that story. Whether or not you're a fan of Rush, um, and this is true of a lot of these films. The story of how those three Canadians busted through and their, their journey is a really great ripping yarn. And there are others as well. That are, that are, whether or not you're a fan of Chicago Transit Authority, the film about them is really a great movie. You know, uh, it's, it's made by his daughter, the guitarist's daughter. Right. Um, and she, she never knew him. You know, so the film is about her discovering of who her father was. That has, And by the way, Chicago was a fantastic band, too. Films have have, uh, an emotional pact. I would urge your listeners to watch all of them, whether or not you're a fan of any particular band. You know what? I've been playing classic rock forever on the radio, and it's true about when you talk about Rush and Chicago, whether you're a fan or not, the journey is really incredible. And along the way, just kind of the one thing that leads to another that makes the band what it is, I guess. Yeah, you know... uh... It's a combination of many factors that gets you to the top of the mountain. Um, you know, uh, talent, hard work, uh, but the main one is luck. And that luck shifts and turns. You have really good luck, then suddenly bad luck, then then a run of good luck, and then a run of bad luck. And it and it's, it's the journeys of some of these bands uh, reflect that that they they have the determination, the true grit, and the gift of talent, but still Lady Luck has its role. And speaking of which, I mean, when you were getting your band together, you already had the name The Police, I believe, in place, and you wanted, it to, you wanted it to be a punk band. I had a manifesto. Funny, I've still got it. <laughs> Whenever I need cheering up, I read my 1976 manifesto. 
<laughs> we don't care about success or fame. <laughs> you find guys, great guys like Sting and Andy Summers, which leads me to believe that you guys were maybe a little more sophisticated than musically than most of the punk bands of the day. Oh, absolutely. We were three or four years older. We're actual professional musicians, whereas a lot of the punk bands, you know, Sex Pistols, uh, The Clash, The Damned, they had picked up their instruments 20 minutes before um, and achieved amazing results because they had the gift. They, you know, the, the, a lot of kids picked up guitars suddenly and are forgotten, but when Joe Strummer picked up a guitar, he was born to play that guitar. And um, so, but we had been around the block a couple times. So we were sort of like sharks among minnows, but the critics uh, wrote us off right away as being charlatans and carpetbaggers, which we were. Uh, we were, you know, I was, uh, you know, I'm now proud. I've come out of the closet um, as a prog rock musician. Right. I had long hair. I had boots up to my knees. I played in curved air, and I'm loud and proud. Uh, prog rock, but in the, the, the critics in the punk era, the rules of punk were very, very strict. Um, obviously the hairdo, critical, but too much musicianship was frowned upon, and we didn't realize in the police how good each other were until we got out of England and played sessions with other people, where other people would say to Sting and I, the rhythm, said, go for it, let's hear what she can do, just take it off, and we'd take it <laughs> off, and Andy would... You know, and we look at each other, wow, you can do that. Yeah. So how do you reconcile all that musicianship? I mean, when it gets to the point where you know we've got to get these songs down to two minutes, how did you do that? Not to say that you were dumbing it down, but how did you kind of fit into that box then? It's sort of like cutting to the chase. We had all done enough sessions so that we knew um, what, what's needed and what's extraneous, what's just... what's what's. Uh, highlights the song and sells the song and what's just showing off. But there was something else, which was that we toured across America as starvelings playing two or three sets a night uh, and had to stretch our material out to the max, which required that we jam and improvise and just make stuff up. And that's also, when we got to America, where in America, um, God bless America, did not know the punk rules and so we could break them. And nobody knew that we're not supposed to play guitar solos. And nobody knew that songs should be under three minutes. So <laughs> that's sort of where we found ourselves is in the, the, you know, the, the, the clubs across America, just stretching the material out and discovering each other. So when we went back into the studio, we were armed. Uh, and and I, I think our records got better and better. Yeah, I agree. And by the way, I loved your film, So What?, which was all about uh, the punk the punk. Now that is obscure. All about the punk culture. I know how much of a fan you were of all those bands, so were you friends with the guys in the Sex Pistols and the Clash? Yeah, yeah. Jonesy, uh, the guitarist of the, of the Sex Pistols, has a radio show here in L.A. Yeah. And he's a good old boy. He's been around the block, and we yuck it up. Because our, our guy, and the same with the Clash and the Damned and, and others, we laugh about how, um, you know, Sex Pistols invented punk. And then the big boys on, on the school playoff, that's Sting, Andy, and me, we, they, they, they got their little piece of candy. Oh, we'll take that. Thank you. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we took their candy all the way to the bank, so to speak, you know, yeah. about it now. Because we were charlatans. We were indeed carpetbaggers. Uh, we were in there we're flying a flag of convenience. Uh, which we soon shredded when it wasn't convenient anymore. If I'm not mistaken, the first score you wrote was for the film Rumblefish. Yes. How did that come... Francis Coppola. 
Yeah, how did that come to you? Uh, well, he woke up one morning and said, let's get that drummer guy in the police, see if he can do a score. And what he did was, while they were rehearsing the film in Tucson, Arizona, um, they he brought in a bunch of musicians. He brought in a really straight uh, um, film composer guy from New York. He brought in a Jimi Hendrix sound-alike guy, and he brought in, and me and a couple others as well. And I guess um, one thing you learn as a drummer is how to get onto the drum stool because there's only one. And those techniques of getting rid of other drummers came in very handy when it came to nuking those other uh, musicians who showed up in Tucson. So eventually there was only one guy standing, and that was me. Wow. <laughs> so having nuked all the competition, <laughs> I got the job. By the way, before I let you go, it seems like you and other drummers like Mick Fleetwood and maybe even Ginger Baker have gone to Africa to find different sounds. How important was that for you? Uh, very important. Um, it was mostly, it wasn't important for me to discover or find what I was looking for, but it, once I went there and had that experience, wow, what an impression. Then what I was looking for was, specifically, the roots of American music, the backbeat, four on the floor, 4-4 uh, four, four rhythm, uh, the uh, flattened seven, which gives us, you know, the blue note, um, that mode that makes, that, that says blues. And I thought I'd find it in Africa, and I found the flattened seventh in a few places that could almost sound like the blues, but not really. I did not find the backbeat. I did not find four on the floor. I didn't find anything recognizably American except uh, one night in jail in Kinshasa, the radio, I could hear an African band playing on American guitars, on American drum set. Uh, the music had come back from America to Africa. And it made me realize that, um, you know, the most distinctive feature of American culture is our music. And we all know where that came. It came from New Orleans. It came from the, uh, from, from black culture invented in America. Right. You know, with, with African roots. But it all was created here. And I've just been making a documentary about this. I've been down on Congo Square in New Orleans, uh, where the story of how uh, these the Confederate Army band instruments ended up in the pawn shops of New Orleans in the hands of the the Africans who would have uh, one day the slaves would have one day off a week because Louisiana was a Catholic state and so there was a one place in America where they were able to express their culture and these instruments were available and so that's how they came into the hands of fundamentally African you know trumpets trombones snare drums. That's where American music, which I consider to be the most important facet of American identity and culture, there's nothing more American than American music, and it came from Congo Square in New Orleans. I feel like I've just been schooled by Professor Copeland. I appreciate that. <laughs> got this all from Luther, Don. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And about 300 yards from, you know, it was actually uh, the, the French Quarter of New Orleans had a wall around it, and Rampart Street was that wall. Outside the city is where this would all happen. And it's all, you know, it was all around, but the Congo Square is kind of the place which has been designated to represent all the places. And about 300 yards away from that is a building that is now a laundromat, which is where Fats Domino recorded the first oh, rock man. record. Little Richard recorded Lucille there. It's amazing. Stuart, I know that you've got to run. Uh, you're hosting HDNet Movies Classic Rock Week starting July 16th. Stuart, an honor. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. 
Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for listening. I get the feeling that Stuart Copeland is only happy if he is extremely busy, which he always seems to be. By the way, there is speculation that the police have been working on a new album with Stuart Sting and Andy Summers already having laid down at least eight songs, but representatives are being very tight-lipped at the moment. Of course, the good news is that Stuart is hosting the HDNet Movies series starting July 16th. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. Thanks so much for listening. Take The Fake Show on the road by listening on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com.